0: Hello, and welcome to the Money Nerds podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Hey there, I hope you're having a great week. Today, I thought we'd mix things up and answer some of your embarrassing money questions. These are questions that you submitted that are... One of the ones where you're like, I should know this by now, but maybe you still don't quite understand a concept. That's what we're going to be covering today. So in the money nerds community, there are absolutely no dumb questions. I think a lot of times we feel like a question is dumb when realistically, nobody has taught this to us. And it's not inherent knowledge. So just because you listen to a financial podcast does not mean you know all the details to things. And that is okay. So today I'm going to be covering some of your embarrassing money questions. Let's go ahead and into the first question. All right, the first embarrassing money question is what is a credit score? Now this is something that took me a little while to learn as well because I used to confuse credit reports with credit scores. I mean, this was not a question, but I'm going to go into this too. A credit report is simply all of the data that backs up your credit history. This is going to include things that maybe you forgot you had opened up a store card for. It's going to show up there. It's going to include your limit. It's going to include on-time payments. That's all on your credit report. Now, your credit score is different. Your credit score is a three-digit number, and it's between 300 and 850 points. And the whole goal of this score, these numbers, is to help lenders determine if you are a risky person to lend money to. In this case, the higher your score, the closer to that 850 mark, the better. If you have a low score that shows a lot of financial instability, it shows maybe some debt collections, it shows all of that kind of stuff, like late payments, et cetera, maybe over leverage, maybe you have too much credit under your name and you're using too much of that. All of that is going to indicate a lower credit score, which tells lenders, hey, be careful when you're lending money to this person. And usually, what that means too is the higher your credit score, the better the interest rate you get on homes, on personal loans, on car loans that kind of stuff even the better credit cards that you have access to a low score does not mean that you're going to have good interest rates in fact it's quite a bit different sometimes as much as 1 to 2% on a typical mortgage so that in a nutshell is what a credit score is. Now, if you're new to credit scores and you're like, I still don't understand how they comprise this and what it's made up of, I highly recommend going back and listening to the Credit 101 episode that I did a little bit ago. So if you scroll back through some of the episodes, you're going to see that episode come up. Listen to that. It tells you roughly what your credit score is composed of in percentages and breakdowns so you can start to see how are they actually coming up with this three-digit number? the next embarrassing money question submitted is what is a 401k? A 401k is simply an employer sponsored account, which means your employer is trying to incentivize you to stick around with a company, they maybe want to give you a little bit of a kickback. And so they offer a 401k, which is a retirement plan. Now, the employer sponsored piece generally indicates that there will be some type of match. Now the match varies. Sometimes you see a 50% match. Sometimes you see a 100% match. So let's talk about this exactly. First and foremost, it's good to know the 401k limit. The limit as of 2022 is $20,500. That's how much money can be contributed into your 401k in order for you to utilize this benefit from the 401k. Now, the interesting thing is, if you are 50 years old or higher, you get an extra $6,500 per year for what they deem a catch up. So if you started a little bit later for your retirement, you're like, crap, now I'm screwed. You're not actually, if you're over 50, you can contribute an additional $6,500. So the total contribution amount for your catch up and everything is $27,000 if you're 50 years old or higher. Now, if you're not, it's $20,500. So here's the thing that's pretty cool about a 401k. Let's say you have a 401k program that is a 5% match. And that's how it's worded. You're like, what does this even mean, Whitney? Well, a 5% match means that if you contribute 5% of your salary, let's say you make $50,000. If you contribute 5% of that, which would be $2,500, your company will match 100%. So, your $2,500 becomes $5,000. That's pretty cool, right? So, at the end of the year, you have a $5,000 contribution. So that's the cool thing about a 401k is it's that employer sponsored retirement account. And this is then invested into the stock market or bonds and usually a combination of that. Typically with most 401ks, it will be set up automatically as a target date fund. A target date fund is a fancy way of saying what year do you think you might retire? So let's say it's 2050. So the portfolio of that target date fund to get you to retire at 2050 is going to be set up in a way that helps you get to that goal. So that's the whole point of a target date fund. And that usually, again, 401ks usually are automatically deferred to that. They're not always. And a lot of times you still have flexibility to choose what you want that money to be invested in. But in a nutshell, a 401k is a tax deferred retirement account that is an employer sponsored retirement account. So it's an employer-sponsored, meaning your employer matches your contributions, and tax-deferred, meaning you take a tax deduction today, but you have to pay taxes later. So when you draw that money to survive and to retire, that's when you're going to pay your taxes. Another important note with 401ks is if you do go over that $20,500 limit, that contribution limit, then you will have to withdraw some of that money and pay a 10% penalty because it's basically considered income at that point. So that's the other thing to note too, is you really do want to honor those limits, but that is what a 401k is in a nutshell. Not too bad, right? The next question that was submitted is, what is an IRA? This question is very different than a 401k, but it usually comes up in the same types of conversation. So, an IRA it stands for an individual retirement arrangement. A lot of people call it a retirement account, but the technical definition is individual retirement arrangement. So, this is the key to this is individual, meaning you don't have an employer that's contributing money to this account on your behalf. Now that's okay. If you have a 401k, get that free money first and foremost. But if you have an IRA and you have some extra money that you can funnel away after you get your free match from your 401k, then it's really a good option to look into IRAs. Now when we talk about IRAs, there's generally speaking two that we most often talk about. Now there's more than two options, but I'm going to focus on the two that are the most common, which is the Roth IRA and the traditional IRA. A Roth IRA Basically means when you get your paycheck, you take that money that you got from your paycheck and you go invest it into the stock market underneath the umbrella of your Roth IRA. A Roth IRA is not an investment, very important to note. It's just a placeholder that tells the government, hey, this is how that money should be taxed. So you contribute your money from your paycheck. When you got your paycheck, you already paid taxes, right? You're you already chose to pay your taxes, you're investing with your take-home pay. When you do that and you're under that umbrella of the Roth, you don't pay taxes ever again because you chose to pay your taxes today. So that money grows and compounds and it appreciates and you get dividends from your investments and all of that happens over time. When you need that money and you officially start to hit 59 and a half is when you can start withdrawing some of that money. When you pull that money out of that account, then you don't have to pay taxes underneath that umbrella of the Roth IRA. Now the traditional IRA is a little bit different. A traditional IRA is set up very much like a 401k. With a traditional IRA, you're opting to pay taxes tomorrow instead of today. So what this actually does is when you contribute money and do a traditional IRA or 401k, this is reducing your current taxable income. So you're going to get a tax deduction, it's going to reduce your taxable income. And what happens is when you go to withdraw that money in the future, that's when you're going to be responsible for paying your income taxes at that point. Now you're paying your income taxes, whatever your income tax rate is at that time of withdrawal. But that's essentially how a traditional IRA works. So Roth, Roth, you chose to pay taxes today. And with a traditional IRA, you're choosing to pay taxes tomorrow. So that's how the IRAs work. The limit currently as of 2022 is $6,000 per year. You can do a Roth and a traditional. You are definitely able to use both of those different types of arrangements, but the maximum contribution is $6,000 per year. Now, similar to a 401k where they have this catch up period, you also have a catch up if you're 50 years or older, you are able to catch up an extra $1,000 per year meaning you can contribute $7,000 per year underneath your IRA, whichever one you choose. So that's kind of the cool piece, but that is an IRA in a nutshell. It's not an investment. It's a umbrella that tells the government how that money should be taxed. And it is a tax incentivized program where you choose to either pay taxes today with a Roth or taxes tomorrow with a traditional. Does that make sense? That's how an IRA works in a nutshell. The fourth embarrassing money question submitted is how much of an emergency fund do I actually need? This is a great question because there's a lot of different numbers that are thrown around in the financial world and ultimately you have to do what's best for you. But I'm going to give you some healthy guidelines that will be financial best practices. Part of this depends on your life situation. The general rule of thumb is you want to save between three and six months of your living expenses. Now, what the heck is a living expense? Let's stop for a second. Things like rent, utilities, groceries, gas in your car. If you have a car payment, you would include that. Any debt obligations that you might have. A gym membership, if you choose to save extra for that. All of these things are like, hey, if shit hits the fan, what do I actually need to survive? That's how I like to think about this. So for some people, they're like, oh my god, if I lose my job or something happens, that gym membership is essential for me. Look, I don't care how nerdy you get. I personally would probably not include a gym membership, but some people do. And that's okay. You just have to include that under your calculation of living expenses when you start to save up your money. Now, the point of an emergency fund is to really help you when you are in a pinch, not if you're in a pinch, when you are in a pinch. The only guaranteed thing I know about life is that it's not a matter of if something bad will happen to you, it's a matter of when. I find that for so many people, when you don't have an emergency fund, it feels like you have a target on your back that says, bad things happen to me. And it always comes in threes. It's the weirdest thing. And so when it comes to your emergency fund, if you have that, all of a sudden you find that a lot of those emergencies, quote unquote emergencies, they don't show up as much they're not as prevalent in your life because you are prepared. Now, I don't know why this is the case, but I see this pan out in my own life. I see it in all of my coaching clients. When you have an emergency fund, you find that emergencies don't come up all that often. When you don't have an emergency fund, it feels like an emergency happens every single week. It's Terrible. It really is terrible. But that's what an emergency fund is designed for. Now, this is very different than a credit card. I have a lot of people that say, can't I use a credit card as my emergency fund? That's what it's for. And the answer is no, you cannot. And the reason why is because... Credit cards do not diminish emergencies. In fact, all they do is make them even larger because you're going to be charged on your emergency, that total amount, you're also going to be paying 18 to 24% interest. It's just not worth it. And ultimately, when you're going through a hard time, and maybe you can't even make the minimum payment on your credit card bill because you're going through such a tough time, you really want to make sure that you have that peace of mind of saying, you know what, I'm covered. I have money in a savings account. Which leads me to the next important point of an emergency fund. With emergency funds, the best place to keep these is not under your mattress. It's not in a money market account. It's not in your investment account. It's in a high yield savings account. We want this to be not earning a ton of money. That's not the point of it. Think of it more like an insurance policy. So the, the point of an emergency fund is not to earn a ton of money. We need it to be liquid. Liquid meaning how quickly can you convert that to cash? So how easy is it for you to go get your money out of that savings account when you need it? Very easy. You just do an online transfer, right? Or you go down to your bank or credit union and say, hey, yo, I need that money. It's really easy to get to. That's the point of an emergency fund. It needs to be easy to get to, but it should also be in a separate bank than the bank you primarily bank at for most cases, because we want it to be a barrier between transfers. But the whole point of that is an emergency fund of three to six months of living expenses in a high yield savings account to cover your butt when things go bad. A lot of people ask too, why why the three to six months? Where does this actually come from? And why the differences? So if I'm a single person and I have a job on my own, I work full time, but I don't have anybody else contributing to my financial life, Six months is great. That's how much you will need because you never know what's going to happen and you have a little bit riskier life because you only have one income, right? So six months is going to make the most sense. When can you get away with three months? If you are in a committed relationship of some type where you financially contribute together, you both have a full-time job, you both make a great amount of money. So if one of you lost your job, you're still okay because you likely have the other partner has an income. So if that's the case, your life isn't quite as risky as the single person who's depending on themselves. So if that's the case, you can probably get away with a three-month emergency fund a lot easier. Now again, these are general rule of thumbs. Part of the other logic behind this too is if you lose your job, it can take quite a bit of time for you to find a replacement job or find a new job that pays the same amount or more. And so because of that, you want that wiggle room to be able to still survive and not just take a job because you need money tomorrow. So that's kind of the other reasoning behind that three to six month of living expenses rule. That's really where it comes from is just giving yourself the best opportunity to get a replacement job and to cover your expenses when you're going through a tough time. The next embarrassing money question submitted is what is a budget? And this is definitely not an embarrassing question. I think so many people get this wrong. Oftentimes we think a budget is tracking your spending. That is not a budget at all. That's a factor of budgeting and can help you, but that's not what it is. A budget is a forecasting and planning tool To help you achieve your money goals. It's a tool that you can use to help you say, here's what I predict my future expenses and future income will be future meaning next month or three months from now. And here's what I predict I will be spending that money on. So see how it's more of a planning tool? The part about budgeting that I think so many people get wrong is they don't look forward in their life. They're not looking at, hey, what do I want to accomplish over the next year, over the next five years, over the next 10 years with my finances? And how do I turn a plan for my next paycheck to help me reach my 10 year goal. That's like some big picture thinking and that's what budgeting allows you to do is it allows you to say my 10 year goal is, I don't know, buy a house and I need $50,000 down. If you know you need that $50,000 in 10 years, you can divide that up by however many months is in 10 years and that tells you how much you need to be saving and setting aside every single month to help you reach that 10 year goal that's the part of budgeting that I think so many people miss. They think, I just need to worry about, you know, when does my car insurance come up again for the six-month payment? That's like the extent of it. But your budget can be a planning and forecasting tool that helps you think much bigger in your financial life and really help you prioritize and really put on paper what is actually important to you when it comes to spending your money. That's what a budget is, and if you need help with this process, go to whitneyhansen.com/how-to-budget. And I have a really detailed article that shows you step-by-step of how to create a budget to get you to that next level. If you've tried this stuff too, and you're like, I still cannot seem to get my budget to work, it might be a good sign that it's time to bring in a professional. And if you do need a money coach, that is my full-time job aside from podcasting. I help people all the time with getting the day-to-day of their finances in order so that you have that peace of mind, that confidence, and more than anything, that bigger picture thinking so that you know that your money is helping you achieve your bigger picture goals. If you're interested in that Whitney slash customized dash coaching, and you will find an application for a coaching program. Okay, that is what budgeting is in a nutshell. If you have any additional questions, swing over to Instagram and let me know. And that's going to be linked in the show notes as well. The next embarrassing money question submitted was, do I really need to buy a house? <laughs> I love this so much because so often the message that we are given, at least here in America, I'm sure this is similar in other parts of the world, is you go to college, you get a good job you get married, you have two and a half kids, you buy a house at some point, you upgrade your house at some point, and you get a new car every three to five years, right? Like this is the message that we are all taught of what success looks like in America. It's it's so predictable here. And because of that, when you come across people that are like, should I actually buy a house? Like, do I really need to? I don't know if I want to. And I don't know if I want that maintenance. I mean, that's a very valid point. So let's talk about maybe some of the arguments, pro and con, to buying a home. I think buying a house or buying real estate in general is a great way to build wealth. One of those reasons is because it's a fast way to build wealth because if you live in a house for two out of five years, So this is just a five-year period. That doesn't mean it has to be held onto for five years. If you live in a house as your primary residence and you do maybe a little bit of work into it and you fix it up and then you sell it and you created some appreciation in that home. So that value of that house is now worth way more. Let's put some numbers to this. I think this usually makes it a lot easier. Let's say I'm going to use very low ball numbers. I If you can find a house for $100,000, send it my way too. That's very cool to me. So let's say you find a house for $100,000 and you live in it for two years. Over the two years, you are fixing that bad boy up and you are putting in some new counters, some new flooring. Maybe you added a bathroom, you got the yard in order. Like It's looking like a cool property. So you added a lot of value. All of those upgrades that you made over two years now has made the house worth $200,000. So you go to sell it after two years because you're like, all right, I'm done with this, ready to move on to the next house. You sell that house and that $100,000... Remember, you sold it for $200,000. That's the value now. You paid $100,000. Yes, I know you had repairs, but from a tax perspective, it's $100,000 in gains. That amount of money is then tax-free. That's the cool thing. If you're single, you can make up to $250,000 in profits that are not taxed. If you're married, it's $500,000 tax-free. That's the cool thing. The rule here is you can only do this one time every two years. So that kind of gives you that two year limit as well. But you can continue doing this process. And I think where else can you find up to $250,000 of profit, not taxed? Like It's really hard to come by. And so that's why I think from a pro perspective, buying a house with that intention can be a very Good wealth building tool. I don't think that's the only way to build wealth. I think it's a way to build wealth. So I think that's really great. Now the con against buying a house, aside from the maintenance and all of that kind of crap, is that a lot of people seem to forget that when you're renting, when you're renting an apartment or a house or a condo or whatever the heck a duplex, that amount that you pay that is your ceiling. That's the most that you're going to pay every single month. Now, yes, your landlord can raise your rent. We all know that. And that generally will happen due to inflation, sometimes higher than others. But ultimately, that's the most you need to pay. You got it. Your fridge breaks down. You call your landlord. If you have issues, you call somebody to come fix it. It's not on your head. When you own a home, that amount that you pay, that mortgage amount, that is your floor. Meaning that everything else that comes up, and it will, your HOA, your insurance, your property taxes, the fridge breakdown, your new roof, your yard work, your sprinkler blowout in the fall and turning it on in the spring, like all of that stuff, those are all expenses that you incur. So whatever your mortgage amount is, you have to remind yourself that that is not the most I'm going to pay. That's the minimum that I'm going to pay. And so because of that, sometimes it makes a lot of financial sense to buy a house and sometimes it doesn't. Ultimately, this is such a personal choice that I can make an argument on either side and it would probably be very accurate because it is an individual choice. If you want to buy a house, great. Buy a house. If the idea of owning a house makes you feel like, oh my God, I'm like confined to one area. Cool. Maybe not the right time. There's nothing wrong with that. So do you really need to buy a house? No, but there are some really cool wealth building benefits behind it. Okay. I was trying to keep this to like 20 minutes, and we're already over on time. So this will be the last question from our embarrassing money questions. And if you like this, let me know, we'll do a part two or three or four, (laughs) if you enjoy it that much. Maybe we'll do these like periodically. These are kind of fun to me. The last embarrassing money question submitted is I have no idea where to start investing and feel stupid not understanding it. So I give up. Where do I start with investing? This is a good question. There's actually two parts to this. One is the mindset behind feeling stupid for not understanding a, a really complicated financial topic. So there's a mindset issue of of course you don't understand it yet. You haven't been investing much. Like that makes sense, right? It's new to you. So you're not stupid. It just feels overwhelming because there's so many different opinions on where to get started. Now the actual part of your question of where to get started with investing Is kind of fun. So it depends on what you like. If you like really boring, safe investing, I love index funds and ETFs. Let's back this up just a hair. With investing, there's always a level of risk, right? We all know this. You can go put your money into a specific stock, that company could go under, and then you lost all of that money. That is a style of investing. That is not a style that I generally recommend or like for myself. So what I personally like is a very boring strategy where every single month I'm investing a few hundred dollars into very well diversified index funds, ETFs and bonds that pay a dividend, some don't, some do. And I put my money in there and the stock market goes up and it goes down and I don't do anything different. I continue investing. So the first place to start with investing is to understand what is your risk tolerance. I want to cover this topic of risk tolerance too, because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. So often we hear risk tolerance and we're like, well, what is your risk tolerance? How comfortable are you with risk? And who, I mean, not very many people are going to raise their hand and say, very comfortable. I love losing money. That excites me when I see my accounts going up and down. Like who in their right mind would say that? I know there's a couple people listening that are like, that's me, Whitney. Good for you, man. That's great. But for most of us, that is scary. So I want you to kind of almost separate this idea of risk tolerance into your personal level of risk. And instead view it as what's the ideal level of risk based on your age. Okay, so this is different. If you're an older person, and let's say you are at 59 years old, you're getting real close to your retirement days, okay, you're you're planning on like walking out of the workplace within six years. If that's the case, you don't have as much time for the market to recorrect if we have a down market, which we currently do. You probably have seen that we entered a bear market, which means investments dropped 20% in value. That's a lot of money. Now, if you're million dollar portfolio dropped 20%. That hurts like hell, especially if you're trying to rely on that income. So because you don't have as much time for that market to recover, it's not that your risk tolerance isn't there. It's that it maybe shouldn't be there based on smart financial decisions, you would need to be in safer, not as high performing investments, because you need stability, you don't need risk and growth. Now, when you're 21 or 22, or even in your 30s, you have plenty of time before you need that money. So your risk tolerance can be quite a bit higher because you have years upon years, like decades for your money to recover when you have a bear market. So that's the first part: is risk tolerance and understanding that when you're younger, you need to take more financial risks. Now, notice that I'm saying financial risk, and I'm not saying stupid, uncalculated risk. <laughs> like there's a very different thing between calculated and uncalculated risk. Going and giving your family friend hundred thousand dollars for their new startup that you think they're a hot shot and might really make it—that is not a really good calculated risk if you have nothing for retirement. So if that's the case, and you don't have that disposable income to just throw out $150,000, you should probably do a little bit more of a safer strategy. Now, again, everyone's different. So I'm talking in blanket statements here. I don't know your specific situation. But generally speaking, you start with your risk tolerance. Once you have that identified, you have to think through the spectrum of investing. Now, I like to think of the spectrum as three different stops. There's probably way more, but in my head, this makes the most sense. On one end, you have the people that are like, I do not want to do a damn thing when it comes to my investing. I don't want to spend any time figuring it out. I will happily pay somebody a lot of money, probably a third of my portfolio, but I don't want to be involved at all. This is not where I recommend. If you listen to this podcast, you're smart enough to do your own investing. But for some people, that's not what they want, no matter what. Maybe they're trust fund babies where they have a ton of money and they can very happily pay somebody and that fee doesn't hurt as much. But if you're a middle class, middle income, or lower, you really need to honor that money and you need to watch all of your fees when it comes to investing. I'm getting on a soapbox. Let me step down for a second. So on one section of your investment spectrum, you have financial advisors who you pay somebody to manage all of that money for you. Okay, that's very hands-off. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people like me where I DIY my own investing. DIY investors tend to look at data and logic and say, most people that are choosing what goes into different investment portfolios and funds don't actually choose correctly. In fact, usually if you do just a really boring strategy of total stock market index funds, or the S&P 500, that tends to perform better than when somebody is manually picking and choosing what goes into a fund. So for DIY people, we say, why do I need to pay somebody, I'll save myself that one to 5% management fee, whatever firms charge. And I will then take that and just reinvest that money. And I'm fine. It's long term. It's boring. I can do this on my own. So those are the two different spectrums. I want to be totally hands off or I want total control. There is something in between, and I think that in between is actually a great place to start when it comes to your investing. The in-between that I see is robo-advisors. What you're seeing is a lot of financial firms. I saw that Vanguard came out with their own robo-advisor. Fidelity, I believe, has one. There's Betterment. There's Wealthfront. There's so many different robo-advisors coming out. And what a robo-advisor is... And as much as I would love to explain this in my own terms, I'm just going to read directly from Vanguard, their definition of what a robo-advisor is. It's an online platform that manages your investments automatically. It's financial advice that comes from an algorithm instead of a person, and it can take a lot of the time, guesswork, and stress out of owning a portfolio. So this is exactly how I view a robo-advisor too. It's when you trust data Instead of a person to pick and choose for you, you would go with a robo advisor. So notice that it's not quite a financial advisor where they're choosing all of that on your behalf. And it's not quite DIY where you're picking everything that goes into your portfolio. It's allowing the algorithm to make selections for you after some very sophisticated analysis. So it's kind of a hybrid between a financial advisor where you get that help. And DIY, where you don't have to pay extra high fees to get that help. So, robo advisor, I would say, again, not financial advice, just education. Please do your own research. I think a robo advisor is the best place to start if you're just getting started in investing. I think it's a great place because it's going to put you into a very well diversified, tons of different index funds or ETFs, usually it's ETFs and robo advisors, and bonds to give you a little bit of that stability as well. And so because of that, I think that's a great place to start for newbie investors. Usually what I find with most people is when you start with a robo advisor, you start to eventually graduate from that where you want to pick and choose and manage your own portfolio. You may not you could always be with a robo advisor, that's cool too. But that is where I would recommend starting when it comes to investing. Okay, now with all those soapboxes and tangents, we're officially over 30 minutes, but I hope that this episode was helpful for you. If you enjoyed it, do me the biggest favor and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast player you're listening on. It means the world to me and helps this podcast get in front of way more people, which is always a great thing. And it's a huge compliment that you can pay to your podcast hosts, myself included. All right, that is it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next week for another episode of the money nerds podcast. Bye. This is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer. He hears things differently